Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 388 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Prehistory. Manned Orbiting Laboratory, Part 2. The mole program started in the 1960s uh, when we were just getting into space. It wasn't until 1961 that man actually got into space for the, for the very first time. It wasn't until 1969 that we landed on the moon. Um, so there's a, most of the 60s, uh, most of the 60s were, were, were taken up by us learning how to operate in space. And that was one of the chief objectives of, uh, of the MOLE program, was to learn what man could and could not do in space, how uh, space affected you know, the human body. Because you know, today, that's second nature. Everybody knows how that goes. But back then, we had no clue what would happen if a human spent a day or a week in space. And so that was one of the primary objectives of the MOLE program. That was the white or the unclassified objective of the white program. That was what everybody knew it to be. However, there was also a black or classified uh, part of the program, and that had to do with what the NRO was doing, taking reconnaissance photos of the Soviet Union and denied areas around the world. Now, we started in 1965. President Johnson approved the program and got us going. And and from then on, we, by that time, we had already been going into space a few times with NASA. Um, and so NRO got together with NASA to figure out what do we have to do? What kind of criteria do we have to set to choose astronauts to go into space? They had already had a few guys there, so they, we worked hand-in-hand hand with them in order to choose our astronauts. And, and after a while, we, we, uh, we, we got the criteria. We did a selection process throughout the Navy and the Air Force um, and with thousands of candidates. And we brought it down and, and narrowed it down. And we finally chose three, group, three groups of mole astronauts with a total of 17 gentlemen. And five of those young, young officers are here with us today. Now. There's a big difference between NASA and the NRO, especially back then. In the 1960s, NRO was still a highly classified, highly secret organization, whereas NASA was a wide open general public organization doing civilian research, um, and they loved publicity. NASA craved press. Um, They sent their guys for interviews. They put them on television. Uh, they did everything they could. They had every every launch was was covered by the major news organizations. Um, they were on television back then. But the NRO was completely different. We were a secret organization. Even the even the candidates who were who were put up for consideration to become mole astronauts didn't even know about the NRO uh, until they were chosen because they didn't have the accesses. And after they were chosen, they, we brought them in and we we sh- we told them all about the 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 different things that we did. And of course, they jumped at the chance to, 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 to join up. Um, but being a secret organization, they had, to, they, had to, they had to stay away from the limelight. They couldn't give interviews. They couldn't talk to the press. Um, much like a lot, of you, a lot of you kids here today have parents who work for the NRO that don't talk about their work a lot. 
you know, they, they also couldn't tell their families what they were doing. Um, so, you know, you know, how, you know how their families felt back in the 60s when, when uh, they were chosen for mole. Now, because we had two missions, there were two distinct types of things that these astronauts had to do. Uh, the, the very, like I said, the public, the public mission of Mole was to uh, go out and, and experiment in space, do, do laboratory experiments, figure out what, how space affected man, and to develop new technologies for space travel. However, their secret mission was to, to, was to work in a satellite they were going to go up for a month at a time, 30 days at a time, work on the satellite to help take pictures of the Soviet Union and other denied areas. And one of the, one of the there was a number of reasons why man, putting man into the equation was going to help out. The, we, the capabilities at that time were going to be very, very, a lot better using man in the, in the system because they could take better pictures, they could choose whether or not to, to take uh, take full photographs if it was cloud covered. You know, if you're spending millions of dollars to, to send a, a satellite up into space and all it does is take pictures of clouds, you're wasting a lot of money. But putting man into the system would allow us to get away from that. You know, these days we have computers that do all that. But back then, it wasn't that, that wasn't the way. And so that was the idea, is to get man into the system and save us a lot of money and effort. Now, the training that these guys underwent was just like, just like NASA astronauts. They were learning the same things. They had to operate, they had to operate in space. They had to, to go up in space launches. They had to learn all the things that NASA astronauts uh, needed to do. But they also had to learn how to operate the satellites up there, how to operate the, the cameras, and how to do maintenance for the cameras and all that stuff. So they had, their job was even harder than the NASA astronauts because uh, they had a lot more responsibilities. Now, very quickly, the program uh, that, Mole, uh, that, that uh, Mole underwent, 1965, we were approved. The initial plan was for six missions at a cost of $1.5 billion. They started immediately and, got, and were working very well for the first year or two. Uh, we put up one launch uh, to test some, some technological systems and did very well. But by the second year... Uh, they were already facing budget shortages. At this time, America was getting heavily involved in Vietnam, and there was a lot of, lot of uh, budget problems because you know, that was costing a lot of money to, to fight that war, and there were also other, uh, all these other budget uh, requirements, that, and, that, and the mole program was taking a lot of money. Um, so they started cutting the budget for mole after the second year, and... When, you do, when they were doing that, they were, they were not only cutting our budget, but those budget cuts created a lot of delays, uh, and that also increased the cost, and so that compounded the entire problem. By 1969, uh, the program was, was already twice as expensive as it originally designed, um, and they still hadn't had a manned launch. And at that time, it was decided to cancel the program just because there were too many, uh, too many other priorities. But one of the other things, too, was that at the same time, NRO was also operating uh, unmanned space launches for reconnaissance uh, problems. We had Corona early in the 60s. Uh, then we had Gambit. We had Hexagon in the planning stages at that time. So the unmanned systems were coming along a lot quicker than they thought, and they were starting to catch up to the capabilities that the manned system uh, was going to be able to do. So they decided in 69 to, to cancel the program for four years and never had a manned launch, there was a lot of things that they did accomplish in that short time. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the technology that was developed uh, was passed along to both NASA and other NRO programs. There was hardware that was given to NASA to help them do their job. Uh, one of the major systems, or one of the major things that the MOLE program had started was Space Launch Complex 6 in Vandenberg Air Force Base. It, was, it, was complete, it wasn't completed until after Mole had already been canceled, but they used that, that system and is still in use today down in Vandenberg, lifting off uh, uh, satellites for, for the NRO. So something that we spent money on a long time ago is still in use today. So that's, that's one of the, the, the legacy. With that bit of background, let's continue with the Mole program. Last time I announced the names of the selected astronauts. Strangely enough, 
mole astronauts only knew of the cover story that the program would be a space laboratory for military experiments, and they did not learn of the reconnaissance role until after they were selected. Once that was explained to them, they were given the opportunity to resign if they disliked the classified aspect. Next, the astronauts received security clearances and were introduced to the sensitive compartmented information such as Dorian, Gambit, Talent, which was intelligence obtained from spy plane overflights, and Keyhole, which was intelligence obtained from satellites. Lieutenant Richard Truly was amazed to learn that his country had not one, but two space programs. The public one, NASA, astronauts, and then this other world of capability that was not even supposed to exist. Retired Colonel Carol Bobco, retired Lieutenant General James Abramson, and retired Captain Robert Crippen told some interesting stories about how the secret aspects of the program affected them. All right, Mole walked a fine line, as Mike mentioned, between the white world and the black world, and you were the faces of that. Can you talk about kind of how that conflict was manifested and how you dealt with managing both? I can remember talking to my neighbor, and my neighbor said, uh, you know, Bo, uh, there's an interesting thing. Maybe you should take care of your daughter. Is My daughter was about six. It says, your daughter is saying to everybody that you're an astronaut. <laughs> and he said, you know, you probably shouldn't have her doing that because that's going to give everybody false impressions. And I said, well, I am an astronaut. <laughs> I'm an astronaut. We call ourselves crew members in the MOL program, which is a DOD program. And, you know, not. But so it was interesting because... You know, he had never heard of the fact that there were MOL astronauts and was thinking that, you know, I should be not telling people that I was an MOL astronaut. I'd just like to say that uh, we were clearly uh, introduced then into the NRO and into the black world, and I don't think any of them, I certainly hadn't, been done with that, and of course in those days, we couldn't even use the initials N-R-O. No. And I still, when I come to this building and see this big sign out, <laughs> National Reconnaissance Organization, and I get all nervous. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to get arrested this morning because my wife made me stop out there so she could take a picture of the sign. I thought, sure, we were going to those clips came from the 2019 NRO National Reconnaissance Office Recognition Ceremony to acknowledge 50 years since the cancellation of the MOLE program. Five of the MOLE astronauts were able to attend and were asked various questions about their experiences with the program. The astronauts in attendance were James Abramson, Carol Bobco, Albert Cruz, Robert Crippen, and Lachlan McClay. I thought it might be interesting to hear some of their comments. First, we have James Abramson. So let's start off right away. Um, tell us what you saw as the most important contribution the MOLE program and you as MOLE's operators could make to national reconnaissance. I'll, I'll tackle at least part of the... The experiment, because the experiment was never finished, obviously, uh, I thought that what we had was an experiment in the maximum contribution that human beings could make in absolutely critical minimum time span in con conjunction with a machine. So it was a machine and a human being. Obviously, we were looking at we had two small uh, telescopes, 
and we were, these were programmed to look through at, at the number, uh, like a uh, soda straw, at the various targets on the ground, and they were the priority targets. We had automatic features in the program that said, it, you tell us if it's clouds, because if it's clouds, we'll go over and we'll check another one in the process. Um, but the real thing was for us to look at the ground with less resolution than the big camera which would be there and to say, is there any indication that this will be something that will be a productive view? For example, at an air base, are there some airplanes there that may be some people? Uh, at other uh, different kinds of things. So we would make a quick decision and the machine would compare our scores with its scores and priorities and go ahead. I, I don't know of uh, uh, a man-machine experiment like that that's ever been done since with that kind of time pressure and as well. And we all trained for it. Uh, I was responsible for building the simulator, which was no small task uh, for the training. And they all had other responsibilities. They had the fun ones. Uh, <laughs> but I thought that was a terrific experiment. Now here's Lachlan McClay answering the same question. Oh, I, I, uh, I second what, what uh, Jim said. We had a lot of, uh, every one of the flight crew, we call ourselves flight crew incidentally, not astronauts. Uh, every one of us had some responsibility uh, in the program and, and my my part and, and Dick Truly's part actually was, was developing kind of an operational concept, exactly what Jim was talking about. Trying to use man to to improve not only the, the, the operation of the system as far as resolution was concerned from the camera, but, but to be selective in picking targets uh, that, that were of higher value, okay? Um, the whole program was designed so that the, the camera was just gonna go do what it did. Uh, it was all programmed from the ground and our job was to interrupt that with our input and then based on what the priority of the target was and what our input was, then the computer would make a decision, okay, what, what are we going to do? Sometimes we'd override, sometimes the target uh, would be so important that, uh, that whether there was anything going on or not, they were going to take a picture of it. Um, so it was, it was kind of an interesting concept in that I think for the first time, man was going to interface with the computer in such a way that the computer would do its job, we'd do our job, and then somehow the, the right decision would be made. So that's kind of that's kind of what we did. And here is Robert Crippen's response. I might add that um, I believe then, and I still believe that uh, humans have got a role for military in space. Uh, they can improve the uh, results <coughs> of the satellites that we fly. Uh, I think that we actually proved that with some of the payloads that we subsequently ended up flying on the space shuttle. All right, let's move on to crew training. Phase one was a two-month introduction to the MOLE program in the form of a series of briefings from NASA and the contractors. Phase two lasted for five months and was conducted at the ARPS, where the astronauts were given technical training on the mole vehicles and their operation procedures. This training was conducted in classrooms, in training flights, and in sessions on the T-27 space flight simulator. Phase three was continuous training on the mole systems and providing crew input to them. The pilots spent most of their time in this phase. 
Phase 4 was training for specific missions. Simulators were developed for each of the different mole systems, including the Laboratory Module Simulator, the Mission Payload Simulator, and the Gemini B Procedures Simulator. Zero-G training was conducted in a Boeing C-135 Stratolifter Reduced Gravity Aircraft. A flotation egress trainer allowed the astronauts to prepare for a splashdown and the possibility of the spacecraft sinking. NASA had pioneered neutral buoyancy simulation as a training aid to simulate the space environment. The pilots were given scuba diving training at the United States Navy Underwater Swimmer School in Key West, Florida. Training was then conducted on a general electric simulator on Buck Island near St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Water survival training was conducted at the U.S. Air Force Sea Survival School at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida and jungle survival training at the Tropical Survival School at Howard Air Force Base in the Panama Canal Zone. Here's how Bobco and McClay remembered the tropical training in Panama. This is a, a little story about the water survival we had down in Panama. Uh, we went down there and we spent a couple of days out in the, out in the weeds and then they decided that we would go back, and the way we would go back would be we would jump into this river and have a couple of us would have flotation devices, and we would go down the river, and then at the end, there would be a big rope that would be across the river, and you'd grab on the rope and went into the place where you're supposed to land. That all sounded pretty nice. Uh, Fullerton and I had uh, rafts full of equipment, and then everybody else just had their underarm preservers. And it, a thunderstorm came up. And the thunderstorm dropped, I don't know how many inches of rain, but the, the uh, river rose about six or ten feet. And so what was supposed to be a little nice meandering stream became this big gushing river. And so uh, people got down, they took got in and went down to where there was a waterfall that had been caused by the river rising so much. And uh, it meant that people would go over this waterfall and then go down under the water uh, a long ways, I don't know, 10 foot maybe down. You could look up and see the feet above you, okay? <laughs> and come back up and uh, uh, most everybody then broke loose down, went down downstream. Fullerton and I both had these big rafts and the rafts didn't sink. They just spun around and went back through the waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> and so and uh, so uh, Fullerton and I are looking at each other and saying, you know, this has ceased to be an exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, well, what are we going to do? So we saw this tree branch that, that was over at the, about the middle of the stream so we said what we can do is we can hand over hand down the tree branch and then we can let go and hopefully that's enough on the other side of the falls that we won't go through them again so we went down hand by hand until we got about two arms length from the uh, where we thought we would let go <coughs> the branch broke and we went through the thing the whole, the whole thing <laughs> we're hanging on the wall there uh and decided that it was uh what we should do is just cut the rafts loose because the people who went down without the rafts, we assumed that they came out down the other end. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was, well, we didn't see them. And, uh, because, so we cut the rafts loose, and then we went down through the waterfall the third time now and made it through. Uh, and when we got down to the bottom, I understand that only one person was strong enough to hold on to the rope as they were, as they were trying to hand over hand and bring it themselves into the shore. Uh, so I guess the, somebody complained to the our the guys who were running the show that this waterfall was there, and they wouldn't believe it, they weren't believing it until one of the their guys, one of the instructors, uh, came by and you know big eyes. 
And you can't imagine what we just saw. Uh, so that was one of the more exciting training sessions that we had. Uh, maybe some of these other guys could say more about it from the downstream side. I got, I got to tell you this, this part of it because one of the guys there was Hank Hartsfield who went on to NASA, and, and Hank couldn't swim. <laughs> uh, so our, our Panamanian guide, who had been with us this whole time, a guy named Tule Rosa, who uh, was a, a marvelous human being. And so Tule was going to be the last guy in the water, and he would have Hank uh, un under his control. So we, we all got in, and, and uh, the, like he said, the river was going up pretty quick. I think it was like 10 or 12 feet in about 20 minutes. And, and we were all in our little vests here, except the guys that had the big thing. And we're just floating down the river. And it became fun because you wanted to get the outside of the curve so you could go faster, you know. <laughs> so everybody would be saying, we got all strung out. And somebody would say, left, 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 or right, right, right. You know, everybody would be paddling to get over to the outside of the turn so they could get going faster. And I can remember we're, we're coming up. I didn't know the waterfall was there. It was nothing but a big boulder, really, is what it was. But the water made a waterfall out of it. And everybody's going, left, left, left. And I hear from the back Tooley saying, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he and Hank, I guess, were the last guys to go with that boulder. And, and uh, he hang on to Hank for dear life. <laughs> It was quite an experience. Yeah, when actually Tooley lost Hank when they went over the falls, and we were all trying to find Hank, and he pops up about 100 yards downstream. <laughs> anyway, Tooley went back, and they, they blew that boulder up. <laughs> they, really, they really went back and dynamited the boulder. He, uh, he was a marvelous human being. He ended up perishing. Uh, because he had some big flood down there, he, he bailed out of a helicopter to save somebody, and they never saw him again. He was a marvelous guy. Finally, in July 1967, the pilots underwent training at the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington, D.C. Now let's move on to the hardware for the MOLE program. First, I want to cover the Gemini spacecraft, which originated at NASA in 1961 as a development of the Mercury spacecraft and was first named Mercury Mark II. The name Gemini was chosen in recognition of its two-man crew. The NASA Gemini spacecraft was redesigned for the mole and named Gemini B. Even though the NASA Gemini spacecraft was never referred to as Gemini A, the uh, astronauts would fly into space in the Gemini B capsule, which would be launched together with the mole atop a Titan 3M launch vehicle. Once in orbit, the crew would power down the capsule and activate and enter the laboratory module. After about one month of space operations, the crew would return to the Gemini B capsule, power it up, separate it from the station, and perform re-entry. Gemini B had an autonomy of about 14 hours once detached from the Mole space station. Similar to the NASA Gemini the Gemini B spacecraft would splash down in the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans and be recovered by the same Department of Defense spacecraft recovery forces used by NASA's Project Gemini and Project Apollo. NASA had a paraglider under development to enable a Gemini spacecraft to paraglide to a dry land touchdown. But, NASA was unable to get it working in time for Project Gemini missions. In March of 1964, NASA attempted to get the Air Force interested in using the paraglider with Gemini B. But, after reviewing the troubled paraglider program, the Air Force concluded that the paraglider still had too many problems to overcome, and it turned down the offer. 
The mole laboratory module was intended to be used for a single mission only, with no provision for a later mission to dock and reuse it. Instead, its orbit would decay and it would be dumped in the ocean after 30 days. Externally, Gemini B was quite similar to the NASA twin, but there were many differences. The most noticeable was that it featured a rear hatch for the crew to enter the Mole space station. Notches were cut into the ejection seat headrest to allow access to the hatch. The seats were therefore mirror images of each other instead of being the same. Jiminy B also had a larger diameter heat shield to handle the higher energy of re-entry from a polar orbit. The number of re-entry control system thrusters was increased from 4 to 6. There was no orbit attitude and maneuvering system because capsule orientation for re-entry was handled by the forward re-entry control system thrusters and the laboratory module had its own reaction control system for orientation. The Gemini B systems were designed for long-term orbital storage, for example, 40 days. But equipment for long-duration flights was removed since the Gemini B capsule itself was intended to be used only for launch and re-entry. It had a different cockpit layout and instruments as a result of the Apollo 1 fire in January 1967 in which three astronauts were killed in the ground test of their spacecraft, the mole was switched to use a helium-oxygen atmosphere instead of a pure oxygen one. At takeoff, the astronauts would breathe pure oxygen in their spacesuits while the cabin was pressurized with helium. It would then be brought up to a helium-oxygen mix. This was an option that had been provided for in the original design. Four Gemini B spacecraft were ordered from McDonnell, along with a boilerplate, aerodynamically similar to the test article, at a cost of $168.2 million. In current dollars today, that is over a billion dollars. In November 1965, NASA agreed to hand over Gemini spacecraft number two and static test article number four to the mole program. Gemini spacecraft number two, which had flown in the 1965 Gemini 2 mission, was refurbished as a prototype Gemini B spacecraft. Which brings us to the space station. The hatch in the Gemini B spacecraft's heat shield connected to a transfer tunnel that ran through the adapter module. In addition to the tunnel, the adapter module contained the cryogenic hydrogen, helium, and oxygen storage tanks and housed the environmental control system, fuel cells, and four quad reaction control system thrusters and their propellant tanks. The transfer tunnel gave access to the laboratory module. The purpose-built laboratory module was divided into two sections, but there was no partition between the two, and the crew could move freely between them. It was 5.8 meters or 19 feet long and 3.05 meters or 10 feet in diameter. Both were octagonal in shape with eight bays. In the upper half, as it would have been on the launch pad, bays 1 and 8 contained storage compartments. Bay 2, the environmental control system. Bay 3, the hygiene waste compartment. Bay 4, the biochemical test console and workstation. Bays 5 and 6, the airlock and Bay 7, a glove box for handling liquids. Below that, a secondary food console. In the lower half, Bay 1 contained a motion 
chair that measured the mass of the crew. Bay 2 had two performance test panels. Bay 3 contained the environmental control system controls. Bay 4 had a physiology test console. Bay 5 contained an exercise device. Bay 6 had two emergency oxygen masks. Bay 7 had a viewport and instrument panel. And Bay 8 was the main spacecraft control station. The station was intended for a crew of two to last a maximum of 40 days. It was to fly in a polar orbit. It was 22 meters or 72 feet in length, and its diameter was 3 meters or 10 feet, which gave it a habitable volume of 11.3 cubic meters or 400 cubic feet. It weighed in at 14,476 kilograms or 31,914 pounds. The payload was 2,700 kilograms or 6,000 pounds. And it could derive power from fuel cells or solar cells. A decent sized launch vehicle was required to place all this hardware into orbit. In this case, it was planned to be the Titan 3M. Now, the Titan 3 was a modified Titan 2 with optional solid rocket boosters. Recall that the Titan II was used for the Gemini program. Titan III was developed on behalf of the United States Air Force as a heavy-lift satellite launcher to be used mainly to launch American military payloads and civilian intelligence agency satellites such as the Vela Hotel nuclear test band monitoring satellites, observation and reconnaissance satellites for intelligence gathering, and various series of defense communication satellites. As the U.S. Air Force Project Titan III was more formally known as Program 624A, SSLS. Now, SSLS stood for Standard Space Launch System or Standardized Space Launch System or Standardized Space Launching System or Standard Space Launching System. The Titan III core was similar to the Titan II but had a few differences. These included thicker tank walls and ablative skirts to support the added weight of upper stages. Radio ground guidance in place of the inertial guidance on ICBM Titans. Guidance package placed on the upper stages if present. Removal of retro rockets and other unnecessary ICBM hardware. Slightly larger propellant tanks in the second stage for longer burn time since they expanded into some unused space in the avionics truss, the actual length of the stage remained unchanged. The Titan III family used the same basic LR87 engines as Titan II, with some performance enhancements over the years. However, the solid rocket booster equipped variants had a heat shield over them as protection from the SRB exhaust and the engines were modified for air starting. The M suffix indicated it was designed for the mole program. The Titan 3M had a two-stage core section with two seven-segment solid rocket boosters attached to the side of the core. It was capable of producing almost 3 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. Its gross mass was 836,560 kilograms or 1.8 million pounds. The height was 39 meters or 127 feet and the diameter was 3 meters or 10 feet. The Titan 3M 
had two guidance systems. The booster's inertial guidance system during ascent with the Gemini B's inertial guidance system as backup. The 3M was also suited for launch of bulbous and lifting body payloads. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 388 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Prehistory Mole Part 2. If you would like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about 10 months now. If you don't know what that is, just email me and I will give it to you. SpaceRocketHistory at gmail.com Well, my Twitter handle is working again. Of course, I lost over 1,100 followers during the hacking incident of 2020... Was it two? Or was it one? I think it was 2022. (laughs) But it's back up again, and my handle is still the same, at Space Rocket Hist. So, please follow if you can. I'm up to 87 followers. Mm. (laughs) Our next episode should appear by May 19th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 207 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. If It should be available on uh, most podcatchers. Now, if you're using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or it will not work. Google makes changes. Why? Just because. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is really a good time to complete it. Of course, I had a few afterthoughts. I want to apologize for my mispronunciation of words and names that I should know how to pronounce. Hope you enjoy all the uh, manned orbiting laboratory coverage. In case you didn't notice, I sure do. (laughs) I'm so glad I got to cover it as part of the prehistory of Skylab. Did you like hearing from some of the former mole pilots? I think just about every one of them went on to a very successful career after mole. Now, I believe seven of them got to fly on the shuttle. One became deputy chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That is the second highest position attainable to a military officer. And uh, Cruz was very involved with the Skylab and shuttle program. General Abramson went on to lead the Strategic Defense Initiative under President Reagan. So quite an impressive group there. I also really enjoyed reading about that old hardware. The Jiminy Blue had a different cockpit layout than the standard Jiminy. Did you know that? I guess it makes sense because it had a different mission. And Jiminy B had a larger diameter heat shield since it had that hatch in the shield. And they actually had plans for an oxygen-helium atmosphere. That would have been fun to see if they talked funny in that atmosphere. Have you ever breathed in a helium balloon and tried to talk? Your voice sounds really funny, almost cartoonish. Wouldn't it have been cool if they could have gotten that paraglider to work on the Gemini so they could land on a runway. I guess the Air Force believed if NASA couldn't figure out how to get it to work, that they couldn't either, so they didn't try. By the way, if you are ever in Dayton, Ohio, a Gemini B capsule is on display at the Air Force Museum. 
which is one of the finest museums in the country. I absolutely love that place. And I wouldn't mind seeing it again. It's hard to see everything. If you stop and read all the documentation with the stuff that you're looking at, the exhibits you're looking at, it's hard to see everything. I think it, I went twice two days last time. I, I, would, I still wouldn't mind going again. It was so fun seeing all that stuff. You know that the space station that they had planned there was a lot bigger than I originally thought. 10 feet by 72 feet. You know, that's a lot bigger than my camper. I wonder, how would it have been to spend a year in that thing? <laughs> I know it was only intended for 40 days use, but that was in space. What if it was in my front yard? <laughs> you know, if they had completed mole, you think they would have tried to start getting two 30-day missions out of the station? So they wouldn't have to keep building the station part over again and they could just use a Titan II to launch that Gemini B in, into orbit. I think they would, but I guess we'll never know. But it is fun to think about. For those interested in the house progress, we've been moved in for a month now and we are loving it. In the past couple of weeks, we had one crew come out and try to get an item off the punch list. It was actually the most important item, and that was the basement leaks. A crew of three pulled in the driveway unannounced. We had no idea they were coming, so they took a risk that we would be here because we had to let them inside and show them where the leaks were. Anyway, we did that, and they, then they promptly had a picnic in the backyard and took pictures of the canola field. They must have liked it too. <laughs> after, after that, it took about probably an hour, and they finally got to work. And I sincerely hope they got the leak fixed. It's supposed to rain some this week, so maybe we'll find out if they did. So we still have about eight items left on the punch list, including... The missing window screens. Where could they be? I, <laughs> I've been posting pictures of the house every other week on Patreon. They are free to look at. Now next week, I'm going to post a picture of the inside of the house. Because I don't think I posted any of those. So if you would like to see that, just go to patreon.com slash space rocket history it is free to look at and that is your house update over the past fortnight we received nine donations and pledges and i would like to thank chubby t who pledged on patreon at the apollo level now he said that is the way to pronounce his name so no complaints please Russ J. from North Carolina donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Cameron B. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien emoji. Daryl S. donated at the Mercury level. Jim E. from Ohio donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Mark P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Niles L. from Norway donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. C.A.S. donated at the Mercury level. Peter M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level with galaxy emoji. Our total Patreon donors have reached 256 with a goal of 300 by the end of 2022. Do you think we can reach that? You know, that's been our goal for the past two or three years, and we just don't seem to be able to obtain that gold. So it would be really nice to reach that. Our total donors, that includes PayPal, Mail-In, and Patreon, have reached 316, with an overall goal of 500 for the year, and we have yet to ever reach that. 
We had another below average month in April, so we are running behind for the year in financial support. So if you are enjoying the podcast that's been running over nine years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link or a personal check if you would like. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this week's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. I am loving being in my house. Still trying out different spaces for my quiet time and my morning coffee, but I found some several places outside that have a nice breeze in the morning. Loving the little pop-in visits from the grands. Why, just the other day, two of them called to see if they could come over and have popcorn with Mike. You know what I said. Of course, come on over. They rode their bikes over and they were here lickety-split. It was great. Now, for the drawing, the winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected John Bright. John Bright, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 316 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, astronautics.com, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Growing Up with Space Flight, Skylab slash ASTP by Wes Oldswiski, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaladick, the National Reconnaissance Office, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 389 posted by May 19th, 2022. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.